Welcome to this edition of Taiwan Talk. I'm Hope Go. Taiwan is no stranger to William Stanton, who served as the director for the American Institute in Taiwan between 2009 and 2012. Unlike his predecessors and his successors to date, Stanton decided to stay here and go into the academe to share the knowledge he acquired during his years as an American diplomat. He joins us this week to talk about what inspired him to join the Foreign Service, why he may not miss it as much, and why he thinks Washington should continue strengthening its support for Taiwan. Given, you know, I was a diplomat or, you know, a foreign service officer for 34 years. And so in a way, you know, it's it's not, it's like a lot of life. It was serendipitous. It wasn't like I had a long-range plan. One of the things I, I attracted me about the foreign service was simply, you know, the idea of living in a library the rest of my life. Um, I When I was a junior in college, I'd gone to Germany uh, for junior year abroad. And thinking back on those days, they were when I traveled around Western Europe. Uh, they were among the best days I had. And when one day I was sitting in a coffee shop reading the local newspaper, and there was a little ad to take the foreign service exam. And so I wrote a letter, signed up for it, went and took it. And to my surprise, because in those days the written exam you know, it was multiple choice, but it was about five hours long. I passed it. How do you feel about being away from the action now? I mean, I know that you've retired, but do you look at it and think about it with a little bit of longing, at least, to see if you might have well, missed yeah, anything except, big? You know, I teach a course now, but what keeps my hand in it is I write a monthly column or try to be monthly commentary. Sometimes I'd like to be back in it, but not really, because the Foreign Service is a very difficult bureaucracy in a way, and it's very hierarchical. You know, basically, also, you have to follow orders. You know, somebody <laughs> decides this is what our policy is, and then you have to go and represent it. So, you know, I remember being in Australia, and there was huge opposition to the Iraq War. And I thought the Iraq War was nuts as well. But I, my job was to go out and uh, give talks about why we were doing the right thing, right. which didn't always make me feel very good, but I didn't put a lot of passion into it often. And I think I was right. I think, you know, the Iraq War was a mistake, just as I think the war in Vietnam was a mistake. Do you consider yourself to be something of a maverick? I mean, you know, you've talked about being in Australia, having to sell a policy that you weren't really keen on representing. Well, you know, I remember um, Kevin Rudd refusing, he walking out of a talk that I was supposed to give to senior Australian people. I think I was a charge d'affaires. I wound up being charge in Australia for about 22, 23 months. You have to be a bit of a maverick, I think, because um, for one thing, there are, particularly in the senior levels, there are so many political appointees in the Foreign Service. And there are so many people who, um, you know, they wound up being, you know, in places like the National Security Council, and they wind up being in higher level government positions as well. And you have to work with those people, and you have to, uh, you know, you have to follow orders to the extent you can. You try to have, you know, your own views on things. Well, you do have your own views on things, and you try to, to make them heard in one way or the other. Sometimes you make you know, you don't make any friends. I think by the time I was done, after my three years as AIT director, I think there are a lot of people in Washington that was happy I was going. Uh, <laughs> the 
because I was always pushing to do more for Taiwan. I thought that was the right thing to do. And, you know, as time went on, the U.S. turned around. It wasn't always it's all about, you know, maintaining the relationship with China. It changed. And I had already done a total of six years in Beijing and had been through Tiananmen Massacre. And I didn't think a good relationship with China was the answer. I didn't think that we were ever going to have that good of a relationship with China because I didn't think, first of all, I knew that a lot of our interests weren't the same, but even more important, I knew our values were not the same. And so I, I tell my students, I've got my own theory, I call it the geostrategic fallacy, which is that, you know, interests alone, even if they're the same, are not going to be enough for a good relationship unless you also share similar values. So I was... A, Pushing, and I think I accomplished a lot. I tried to to get us to go more further on Taiwan. In the course of things, I think I really ticked off people, and I was, you know, I was very, I was outspoken by that point because I knew, by and large, I wanted to stay one more year in Taiwan because, for example, we were already gotten Taiwan to be named a candidate to be in the visa waiver program. I think I, I was the one who really moved that forward. They waited until two months after I had stepped down, and then they announced the, that, in fact, they were in the visa waiver program. And I think they did that deliberately. You know, uh, you know that's fine. You know, people can do what they want. And I knew what I had done. And, and when they had a celebration in the foreign ministry, they actually did a slide with my picture on it because they recognized that I was the one who really had moved that process forward. You know, the, the, in that whole period of time before I left the Foreign Service, it was still all about the whole theory you have to maintain a, a good relationship with China because in the long run, the Chinese will come around. You know, the whole theory was that as they became more prosperous, they would grow more democratic. But actually, that was just a businessman's argument to justify bringing them into the World Trade Organization for giving them most favored nation trading status, which just meant treating them like a normal country, despite all of their human rights violations and offenses. You know, that was absolutely the wrong move. But, you know, nobody could go out and say, look, we want to make money. We're selling a lot of stuff in China. So what they would say is, you know, China will come around as they become more wealthy. They'll become more democratic. And of course, that was totally, totally specious and um, never happened. So do you, there you go. Do you think that Washington's kind of taken a 180 on Taiwan because of what's happening in Ukraine? Well, that certainly helped, but I think it even goes back before that. It's been, I've been there, there's a whole series of events that I think people never expect. There's Hong Kong, the death of one country, two systems, justification, the fact that now you can see uh, foreign businesses are leaving in droves from Hong Kong, that a lot of headquarters that have been placed there are moving to Singapore or other places. There's what happened in Xinjiang and the evidence of internment and prison camps there for people. You know, the fact that in places like Mongolia, they're forcing everybody to take all their classes, not Mongolian, but in, in Mandarin. The fact they pay Han men to marry uh, Tibetan women and uh, Xinjiang women, you know, they get, they get a payment for that because that's a way of, a way of basically um, robbing people of their ethnic heritage. Uh, so 
you know, there were all those things. There was the, the aggressive behavior of China in the South China Sea. I think, you know, finally now, you know, it's the Chinese lack of clarity on their position on Ukraine and the possibility that they're selling stuff to uh, the uh, Russians or supporting them in other ways. I think I think there's just been a sea change because as the Chinese have become rich, they've become, frankly, I think, more arrogant. Well, they, they say the U.S. has always been arrogant, so it might be turnaround fair play from their perspective. But, you know, for example, they've made it very clear that they want the U.S. out of Asia. That's their policy, basically, on the South China Sea. They feel it's their area of control, you know, and... Uh, they they look back on the uh, Monroe Doctrine and they say, you know, you had similar. But, you know, Monroe Doctrine was different in the sense that we never said anyone had any control over the entire Caribbean, for example. We only recognized the three-mile limits uh, offshore, but they claim, you know, 86% of the South China Sea. So, yeah, I think, you know, it's been a... A slow, but it's been a certain awakening. You know, it began actually a little bit during Obama, but certainly Trump was the real turning point. They were certainly right about we needed to shift our China policy. We needed to show more support for Taiwan because Taiwan is a democracy. You know, it's a precious, it's a precious achievement on the part of the Taiwanese. You were listening to Bill Stanton, former AIT director who served between 2009 and 2012. And that does it for this edition of Taiwan Talk This Week. I'm Hope Go. Join us again next time. Thanks for tuning in.